of Jesus Christ, the coming of this Messiah that was promised long ago. There's a word that you may be familiar with. Have you ever heard the word Advent? Advent is a, is a Christmas term. Many people don't know what Advent means. I'll be honest, until a few years ago, I, I knew it was a Christmas term, but I really didn't know what it meant, and it's a real simple term. It means coming. And so Advent at Christmas is where we focus on the coming of Christ. And the, the coming of Christ that we're talking about is the first coming. It happened 2,000 years ago. And there is a second Advent that we're waiting for, and that is the second coming of Christ. So we find ourselves in this day and age in a really unique position that not all people in human history have experienced. We spend all of our time looking back towards an Advent that was promised long ago, while at the same time looking forward to an Advent, a second coming that's been promised from long ago. So we're looking in two directions in this era that we live in. And what a blessing it is. What a blessing it is that we can look back to that first advent and see that it happened to the fullest. And with that, we with great confidence look forward to the second coming, the second advent of Christ, with great confidence that it will come. I've used this analogy before, but I'm going to use it now on the advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. It is like a diamond. You remember my diamond analogy that I shared with the Gospel of John in the, in the four Gospels? The coming of Christ, the promised first coming of Christ, is like a multifaceted, multi-angled diamond that you can hold up to the light and it will shed light and reflect light in different intensities, in different colors, in different directions, over and over again. And we're going to, to focus on the astonishing events around the Advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ. But we have four Sundays to do this, and we will only be able to look at four of these facets of the coming of Christ. And so I say to you that in the years to come, we will have plenty of other opportunities to look at fascinating features about this promised Messiah that came. But this, this year, we're going to look at four. And so what we're going to do is this morning, we're going to look at the truth that long ago, I mean real long ago, God made a promise. God promised that there would be a Messiah that we just sang about that would come. And people long ago anticipated this promise. People long ago. We're going to go way back to the very first promise of this Messiah in just a moment. And we're going to see the very first people that longed for this promise to come true. And now we live on the other side of the fact that the Messiah came. And people marvel as we look back 2,000 years ago to see that God's promise was absolutely and fully fulfilled. And so what we do is when we look at this advent, this coming of Christ, we understand that we're looking at what I like to call the center of time. Because humanity has existed from long ago in the very beginning, looking forward to the first coming of Christ. And now humanity in our day and age lives to look back at Christmas every year to this coming of Christ. And it has become the center point of human history, the coming of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so we're going to look back at the, at the central point of human history here in this sermon series. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the promise of a Messiah. Um, 
Next Sunday, we're going to look at the wisdom of God and how Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. The third Sunday, we're going to look specifically at the incarnation of God. We sang Emmanuel means what? God with us. And then the fourth Sunday on December 25th, we're going to look at two people from the Bible, Anna and Simeon, and how they realized in the flesh the fulfillment of the promise of the coming Messiah. So that's where we're going to go for these next four weeks. And I pray that you will join with me and we together will marvel at this incredible truth that God came and fulfilled his promise to the letter. This coming of Christ has been a major theme to human life from Genesis forward. It is the central theme of the entire Bible. There are verses in this Bible that tell us about the coming one the anointed one, the Messiah. We read verses after verse after verse telling us about this Messiah. In fact, all the other verses that don't specifically tell us about this coming one deal with some aspect of this coming one. And so the entire Bible is about Christmas. The entire scriptures are about Christmas. And this Bible gives us the promise from God to man that there would be a coming Messiah. And Jesus even speaks to this. Let me just read you real real quickly three verses where Jesus tells you what I just said. In Luke 24, 27, we've read this verse often here. Jesus says, or, or Luke writes in his book, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is what Jesus told those disciples on the... Uh, road to Emmaus when they were distraught that Jesus had been crucified and he no longer was with them. He opened the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and interpreted to them everything that was about him in those books. In John chapter 1, Philip, when he discovered Jesus Christ, he ran to his brother Nathaniel and he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. So there was this anticipation 2,000 years ago that there would be this one that was promised. And here, Philip got to deliver the news that the promised one has been realized. And then Jesus in John 5, 46 says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So the entire Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament is about a promised one that was going to come. And we now today begin a series where we will look at this from four different perspectives. Now, we need to understand that God has made a promise that there would be a Messiah, but we have to understand why God made this promise. Christmas begins in Genesis Christmas begins when we realize what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And the Christmas story cannot be void of understanding that something went really wrong long ago. And there needed to be one who was promised to come to remedy what has gone wrong with man. So the truth of Christmas, the coming of Christ, begins in the creation account. And what God created way back in Genesis 1 and 2 in the very beginning, the Bible tells us, It was perfect. Everything that he made was without flaw. And God on the sixth day 
made his most supreme creation. What was that? Let me hear you. Mankind, you and me. It's not human arrogance I'm talking from. Biblical texts tell us that man is the supreme creation of God. Why? Because God made man like nothing else in the history of creation. He made man in his own image. And so God made everything perfect, including man. And man was made in his image. And at the end of six days in all of creation, God saw that it was very good. But things changed, didn't they? When we go to Genesis chapter 3, and I'd ask for you to turn there with me to chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, we see that something went really wrong. Genesis 1 through 12 depict for us the fall of mankind. You see, God gave man three commands when he made him, as I see it. He told him, first of all, that they were to be fruitful and to multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Second, he said, I need you to fill the earth and to subdue it. And the third command, the one that we're all very familiar with, is he said, I am not going to allow you to eat of one single tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So go forth and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and don't eat of one tree. Those are the instructions that God has given man in Genesis. But we know that man defied one of these commands and rebelled against God. For man went and ate of this one tree that God said not to eat of. And at that moment... At that moment, mankind was defiled and corrupted for all generations that followed. This is a really bad condition. This is a condition that needs a solution outside of man because man is not going to be able to right what he has done wrong against a holy God. And then to complicate matters, man was obedient and he was fruitful and multiplied. And he filled the earth. And this is where we come into the story. Because we come from this corrupted man and woman, Adam and Eve. And so we enter into this need that we're going to see here in a moment for a promised one to come and remedy us from all that has gone wrong in God's creation. And so all mankind since that time has lived under this curse. And the curse was, if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And we all understand what it means to live under the burden of this curse that God pronounced for disobedience. And so now we come to Genesis 3.15 and we see the very first time in Scripture. I want you to look very intently with me here. We see for the very first time in Scripture the promise of one who will come to remedy this wrong. And I'm going to tell you that there are many passages that we could delve into this morning. But we're going to survey several different places in Scripture to see this theme of a promise that one will come and and solve this problem. But I want you to understand that as we see these promises, as we progress, they're going to be real dim early on. There's going to be a little faint trace of light. But as we look at these promises and how they progress from God to man through the Scriptures, they will become more and more enlightened and more and more in color and more and more full. So here's the first promise. We're in the garden. God has confronted man in Genesis chapter 3, and he's ready to to pronounce some curses on the serpent that has enticed 
Eve to eat of this tree. And then he's going to pronounce a curse on the woman and on the man. But first he goes to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and he says, I will put enmity, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. Do you hear the strong promise, the certainty, the guarantee from God that there's going to be some offspring here at war with one another? It's faint, but we're going to trace this theme of an offspring through the scriptures here momentarily. About this passage, Charles Spurgeon said this. I'm just going to read him. This is a brilliant observation of this passage. He says, here is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the earth. It was a memorable sermon indeed with God himself for the preacher and the whole human race and the prince of darkness for the audience. And it must be worthy of our highest attention. That's what Charles Spurgeon said in the 1800s about Genesis 3.15. It's the first gospel sermon ever. Gospel means good news. There's good news in this because there's a promise of a solution to the wrong. And isn't it amazing that this sermon was delivered when it was. This is immediately after the fall. This is before the curses are given to Adam and Eve. The serpent is the one who is sentenced first, and we see here the mercy of God because man has not done anything yet to right this wrong against God because man is incapable. So God is stepping in and making a promise that even God himself will fulfill. He will not expect man to fulfill this promise. And this promise right here in Genesis 3.15 should hold our attention as we read the rest of the Bible. As you read the Bible for yourself, you need to be reading with Genesis 3.15 in mind. Where is the evidence of this offspring that God promised in the third chapter of the Bible? Where are signs of him? And where is his fulfillment upon us? And so we move on. I want you to move over to Genesis Genesis 15. Just a few pages over to your right. Genesis 15, we pick up and we see now we're going to trek through quickly a progression of promises that God makes that are based upon this promise that was originally made in Genesis 3.15. And so we first come and we say hello to a man named Abraham. At this time, he's actually called Abram. And in Genesis 15, verse 5, God intensifies the light just a little bit on this offspring. Because in Genesis 15.5, he says... And he brought him outside and said to Abraham, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Here's this offspring theme that is carrying on now into the life of Abraham. So Genesis traces the beginning of a line of godly offspring. After Adam and Eve, we go to Seth, we go to Enoch, we go to Noah, and then God brings us up to this man named Abram, and he makes to him a promise that says, your offspring are going to be so numerous that you can't count them. There's a promise there. And yet we see that Abraham was a fallen man. So Abraham was not the one of the promise, not the promised Messiah. He was one that the Messiah would come through. So now we say goodbye to Abraham and we say hello to the next that God would raise. The next that I would bring our attention to is a man named Moses. And Moses is a more intense picture of this prophet of the Messiah. 
Because through Moses, God redeems his people from bondage, from slavery in Egypt. Humanity is in bondage to sin and death from the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And Moses is a type of Christ that comes in advance, that points us to Christ. He's not the Christ, but he does exactly what Christ will do for us because man is handcuffed and chained to sin and fallenness. And Moses leads Israel, who is handcuffed and chained to bondage in Egypt, out of Egypt to a promised land. Well, one day Christ will lead us to a promised land that is eternity with him on a new heavens and a new earth. So Moses is just a little bit brighter picture of this promise that God set in motion back in Genesis 13. But Moses was a man, and he was fallen. He was not perfect, and he could not be the one that God promised ultimately. So we say goodbye to Moses. And next we see that after Moses was a man named Joshua. And here the light really gets a lot more brighter because the first thing we need to understand is the name Joshua means God saves. And the name Jesus is derived from the Hebrew name Joshua. So Jesus and Joshua, their names mean the same thing. We'll look at that in three weeks. This means God saves. And so Joshua is a conqueror, a conqueror of God's enemies. Remember, there's going to be enmity between an offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And there's going to be a crushing of the head and a striking of the heel. Well, Joshua is a conqueror and he conquers the enemies of God as he leads the people into the promised land. This is prefiguring Jesus Christ. And then we hit this moment that, that we pause because humanity at this time, the Israelites rather, at this time, have looked around. And they've looked at their neighbors. No, they've looked at their enemies. And they've said to God, we want a king like all of our neighboring enemies have. We want a king who will sit on a throne, who will have a sword in his fist, and who will reign and rule like the rest of the kings of the world. God, give us this king. Where is he? And so we say hello to a man named Saul. And God allowed in his sovereignty these people to not be satisfied with him as their king. He allowed in his sovereignty them to raise up this strapping, strong, six-foot-four Saul to be their leader and their ruler. And they stuck a crown on his head and a sword in his fist, and he rode on a white horse, and he ruled and reigned. And they were pleased, but only for a moment. So God gave this king over, but God uses this kingly line that starts in Saul to establish the throne of David. <laughs> and we know a lot about David, right? Let's go to him next. We say goodbye to Saul. We say hello now to David because Saul did not rule well. And David is raised up. And now we get a real intense increase in the light and the shape and the sound and the color to this promised one that's going to come lead God's people. I had Luke read for us Acts 13, and when he read verse 22, here's what it says. Paul says, and when he had removed him, he raised up David. When he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And we're getting closer to this 
promised one because God has never said about anybody up to this point in Scripture that this man is after my own heart. But that is true about David. And then we see all kinds of things that start adding color to this promised Messiah that's coming because David's from a little bitty town called Bethlehem. And David is a shepherd. These are both, Jesus comes from Bethlehem. Jesus is the good shepherd. So we start seeing more light and more color added to this promise. David was a king on a throne with a sword in his fist. Like the people wanted. Jesus one day will reign like a king like this. And David was a successful conqueror of the enemies of Israel. We can read of all of those accounts in First and Second Samuel. And yet, and yet David is a fallen man. And David cannot be the Messiah. In fact, David has fallen to the degree that God will not even allow him to build his temple. And so David has to go by the wayside as we continue on looking through the scriptures for the coming of this Messiah. And next, and I'll just condense a whole lot here, we get Solomon next. We'll talk about Solomon in the coming days. And then we get all these kings. Some of these kings were good and did good in the sight of the Lord, and some of these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we go through this whole era of kings over the split kingdom of Israel and Judah. And so now we come to a point in the scriptures where we hit the prophets. We could talk about a lot of prophets this morning, but mainly let's talk about the prophet Isaiah. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 7 and see what God says about this promise through his faithful prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, has, in, in his book, he prophesies of a time of exile for Israel because of their unfaithfulness to God. They're going to go into captivity. But then Isaiah prophesies under the inspiration of God, that Israel is going to be brought back out of exile and they're going to be restored. And they're going to be right with God again in their land. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a very familiar Christmas verse for us. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. So here we have this Woman, Remember, we've got a promise back in Genesis chapter 3. There's going to be an offspring of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And here is a virgin who will conceive and bear a son. That's the offspring of the woman that we're introduced to in Genesis 3. Isaiah 9, turn two pages over. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Another big time Christmas verse for us. For unto us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a promise in the words of Isaiah. And it's a lot more bold and a lot more clear and a lot more certain, but it's not yet still fully revealed because now all we know is there's going to be an offspring of the woman, of a virgin, and he's going to be a son, a child, and he's going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace, a king, an offspring. 
And so then we come to the New Testament. And we see that this promise to the letter in every way that God made it throughout the ages is brought to full fulfillment. And I love to share this verse. This is like my favorite Christmas verse, okay? And some of you might make fun of me because I'm always citing this verse. It's 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20. And it says this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. God, this verse says, is a God who makes promises. And our God is so faithful that when He makes a promise, it is always certain to be done. It is never no. God never promises us, never teases us with a promise and then says, you know what, I'm going to change. That didn't, that didn't figure into my plan, so we're going to go this route instead of that route. No, every promise that God has ever made is yes. He delivers. He's not like you and me. We don't deliver like God does in our promises. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. We struggle with making oaths and honoring them, but our God doesn't even have to struggle at it because it is his very nature. He made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there would be an offspring from the woman, and that promise is yes in Jesus Christ. Because the woman is a virgin named Mary. There's no man involved in that conception. He is conceived of by God the Holy Spirit. And this offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent after that serpent strikes his heel. And that points us to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For you see, the offspring of the serpent, Satan, struck Jesus on his heel when he nailed him to that cross. And Jesus crushed the head of that serpent on the third day when he rose from the dead and defeated death and sin forever. That is Genesis 3.15 happening in the New Testament at the end of your four Gospels in your Bible. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. He uses no other source to make his promise come true but Jesus Christ on every single promise you can ever find in the Scriptures. And so we have here this fulfillment of Christ being prophesied about way back in Genesis and for generations and generations and generations, thousands upon thousands of years, people looked intently into who has been born into the nation of Israel. Is this the one? Is this the offspring of the woman that God guaranteed would come? And time after time after time, they said, nope. Close, but still got a long ways to go. So we hit Abraham, and we hit, we hit Isaac, and we hit Jacob, and we hit Moses, and we hit Saul, and we hit David, and Solomon, and Josiah, and Hezekiah. And all the while, people are going, is this the one? And each time, it was a no. Until a night long ago, about 2,000 years ago, when the virgin did give birth. And she named him... Jesus, which means God saves. He was referred to as Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. Galatians 4.4, love this verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15. You hear it? Born of a woman, born under the law. And so this promise is absolutely fulfilled 2,000 years ago on a lonely night. From the advent of Christ, this first coming of Christ, to the substitution of Christ, I will tell you that these are the two biggest biblical truths that we need to hang our lives on. There's a promised coming Messiah. So Advent is a huge biblical truth that we need to hang on to tightly in our lives. And its brother is that of the one of substitution. Because this son didn't merely just come to step onto earth and and live and do some miracles and teach some powerful stuff. No, the Advent, the coming of Christ, was anticipating the work of Christ. And Jesus Christ came to die. A baby was born of a virgin. There was an offspring of the woman who came with the purpose to die. To crush the head of the serpent. Hebrews 2.14 tells us this is exactly what happened. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So there you have a nice, compact verse that depicts for us Jesus' death and the striking of his heel and the head-crushing blow of the resurrection that he had when he had power over death and rose on the third day. So I invite you this Christmas season. It's December 1st. We begin now our track towards the 25th. I invite you to consider every day this month, every day this month, that we worship a God who made a promise long ago. And this march up to December 25th, we don't know the day that Jesus was born, but this is a day that we have chosen to acknowledge this. Our march up to the 25th of December is a march through a month-long celebration of a God who makes promises and of a God who says yes to every promise through his son, Jesus Christ. So this month, we must intensify our awareness of our, in our consideration of God fulfilling this most important promise. And I will tell you that we will be embattled every step of the way because the culture that we live in does not want us to ponder on the promise that God made long ago and fulfilled in Christ. And so I urge you, as your pastor, fight the fight this month to engage every day in praising God for fulfilling His promise on Christmas morning. Let's pray.